Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dominic Kalasala will join us to discuss mixed severity fires. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, for the first time, scientific research has been compiled from fire-adapted regions providing extensive documentation that forests and other plant communities need a variety of different types of fires, including severe fires, to rejuvenate over the long term. These findings are timely in light of current proposals by members of Congress to weaken environmental laws based on the assumption that current fires are damaging forest ecosystems and that increased logging is needed to reduce fire effects. Well, joining us to discuss this issue is Dominic A. Delasala. He's the chief scientist of the Ashland-based Geos Institute and co-editor of The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires, Nature's Phoenix. And he joins us today to uh, talk about this issue. Um, Dr. Del Sol, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on. I guess we've all heard about the importance of fires in, in terms of rejuvenating the forest, but how, really how is important is uh, mixed severity fires? Yeah, great question. So, you know, if you were to fly over a uh, landscape like a wilderness that had experienced a fire uh, and where the flames had gone out, and you were looking down through the plane window, you would not see one big homogenous burnt landscape. It would look more like a kaleidoscope of plant communities that are in different stages of rejuvenating from fire. So the fire went through the wilderness. It didn't just kill all the trees. In some places, usually the minority of the burned landscape is the severely burned patches where almost all the trees were killed. In other places, hardly any trees or no trees were killed, and there's everything in between. And so when we've got that kind of variety in nature, variety is the spice of life. And so we've got a lot of development of the web of life that's associated with those fire-dependent systems, and it's uh, all mixed up in terms of plant communities that either were cooked by the fire or not influenced that much and that's great habitat for all the wildlife that needs either heavily burned landscapes or landscapes that weren't burnt at all. So we like to see that kind of variety. And, and is that kind of variety then disappearing in forests as they exist today? I don't know if it's disappearing, but it certainly is at a deficit compared to what uh, Native Americans experienced and the early uh, European settlers that were coming over, for instance, to the western United States. There was a lot more fire burning during those times and a lot more variability on the landscape and therefore a lot more plants and wildlife and, you know, variety is a good thing. And so we are actually in a shortfall, even though we see this on the news every summer, fires are burning in the West. We have less acres burning today than what was happening in the early 1900s and even before that. Uh, so the idea that logging can mimic this is, is probably not correct. Yes, and that's one of the things we point out in the book. There is a consensus in the scientific community that we, when it comes to forest fires, 
nature knows, knows best. We cannot mimic that effect because what happens with logging, the industrial type of logging, is you take out the very components that those uh, fire-adapted systems need to rejuvenate. The big trees, whether they're alive or dead, are so important to whether a forest comes back or not, and those are the same trees that the loggers will go after after a forest fire, and so you don't really get a, a natural forest that will come back after logging, but a natural forest will come back after a forest fire. What does this mean then for our management of the forests and people who are living in regions which are prone to fires? I think we have to get to a point where coexistence is possible. Fires are not going to go away. We're in a uh, unprecedented climate change right now due mostly the burning of fossil fuels and deforestation. So the more CO2 and uh, global warming pollution we put into the atmosphere, the more likely we're going to see a return to historical fire levels. And that's somewhat happening in the last few decades. And so we can't log our way out of this. We can't suppress the big forest fires because they occur in extreme weather events triggered by climate change. So what we've got to do are two things, actually three things. One is we've got to stop putting CO2 into the atmosphere. So we need a rational energy policy and we've got to stop deforestation of a forest because that's also contributing to global warming pollution. Secondly is that we really need to have rational community development plans that limit sprawl into fire areas. So the more we build into these areas, the more they're going to get destroyed by a fire. And then thirdly, the places that already have homes in fire-adapted systems need to prepare for fire. And there are a lot of ways to do that so that we could reduce the uh, losses to homeowners and reduce the effect of fire on the home. And I think that's where a lot of the management needs to be targeted. How easy do you think that's going to be? I mean, if people continue to build in these regions, and they seem to go about it with, with their own thing in mind. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, at some point we're going to have to have a wake-up call on that because the more people build in the backcountry, the more the cost of fire suppression is going to increase. There's got to be a limit somewhere because Congress can't keep shoveling money into fire suppression. We're already seeing that. The Forest Service, for instance, half of their annual budget goes to fighting forest fires. That is unprecedented. There's got to be a limit somewhere. We've got to get the connection with the more we build into these areas, the more they're going to be affected by fire, and we can't put out these big fires. So we've got to figure out a rational way to limit exurban sprawl into the backcountry where fires are likely to affect homes. Uh, have there been an increase in the number of fires uh, since this policy began? You know, you have to really look at a long timeline in terms of whether or not fires have been in increasing or not. As I mentioned earlier in the show, if you go back to when the early settlers came across, when the Native American people were here, they were seeing a lot more forest fires than we are today. However, in the last two or three decades, there's been an increase in forest fires, and that increase has been associated with an incredible spike up in the number of homes lost. And that number uh, has been increasing, not so much because there are more fires today, 
but because there are more homes in the backcountry. So if we want to get a handle on reducing homeowner loss, at least one thing we need to do is limit the sprawl that's happening into these areas. It's the same reason why you wouldn't build a home in a floodplain or in a hurricane uh, belt. You're going to get a disturbance like that at some point, and at some point we've got to realize that we just can't keep building in places where we're going to hit Mother Nature at you know, the worst possible time during a fire or a flooding event, and so that really needs to be part of how people think about building. How does the U.S. compare in terms of its policy with other countries? Yeah, you know, it really varies, but we actually found that at least in um, in places in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa, people have been dealing with forest fires and woodland fires for just millennia. And so they're used to it. Coexistence is happening with fires in at least uh, the sub-Saharan Africa uh, region where uh, it's just expected every year you're going to get fire during the dry season and people know it's coming and they prepare for it and there's coexistence going on. In Europe, it's a lot different because you have such a populated landscape. It's just really hard to get any kind of forest fire that's natural, and you lose all those biodiversity benefits. So it's, uh, it's a problem, I would say, that's global, and there are examples of some places where coexistence is really going on. What then do you think uh, is some recommendations for, uh, I guess, people first who are, who are living out in, in the backcountry? Uh, what generally are changes sort of the shift in idea? Of? Yeah, so there are a couple of ways to do this. You know, first of all, there's been a lot of science done on this over the last decade or so. And the science all points to if you take precautionary steps close to the home, the chances of that home surviving a forest fire go up to uh, about 90% or so. You don't improve the chance that your home is going to survive a forest fire if you're logging in the backcountry. So the science is really crystal clear on that. So now I can also speak from personal experience because I have a home. I purchased it that already was built years ago uh, in, in the backcountry um, in fire habitat, and I formed a fire shed with my neighbors, and we all proactively reduced the vegetation in a 100 to 200 foot radius around our house. We built with fire resistant material, so no wood uh, on, on the uh, rooftops, for instance. We screened our vents so embers can't get into the house if there's a forest fire. And, you know, we just took those kinds of precautionary steps, and I think there's, you know, a degree of safety that comes with knowing that you've gone through and made those changes so that if a forest fire comes through, you've greatly increased the odds that your home is going to survive that event. For people who want to know more, uh, of course, is the book, but are there other resources that people can go to? Yeah, there's tons of information on FireWise communities. A lot of states are actively involved in this. County governments are involved in making sure that homeowners have access to information on, on preparing for fire and reducing their risks. Insurance companies are doing it uh, because they recognize the liability issues. So there's a lot of information on the web on how to get homes ready for fire so that you get into that category of, hey, you know, we can get up to more than 90% risk reduction by doing these very simple things. 
um, at the homeowner level so that when the fire does eventually occur, it's going to pass through and, and hopefully not hit your home because you've done those steps. Important steps, and uh, the book is called The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severities Fires, Nature's Phoenix. Co-editors Dr. Dominic Delasala and uh, Dr. Delasala, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.